Father, uh, we thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much um, for this podcast. Uh, Father, we just ask that you would be with us as uh, we uh, talk with Jim and um, uh, we could be an encouragement to him and he could be an encouragement to, to us and our listeners here that will be listening to this um, this week. And uh, we just ask that you would uh, bless all of the things that we say here today. Jesus name we pray. Amen. Welcome to season three, episode 16 of Grace or Grit. This is a podcast intended to address difficult, controversial, and debatable issues related to the Bible and the church. Today, we're just going to stick with difficult, and I think you'll see why as we get uh, going here. I'm your host, Dave Talley. I serve as pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Herlock, Maryland, and joining me for the podcast episode once again, as usual, is my co-host Patrick Reed. Patrick, how are things going over there in the Gambia and Africa? Oh, things are going well. We uh, last night uh, the rainy season started, so we got our first rain. It's uh, well, maybe about a month early, so I'm not sure what to make of that. But might have a long rainy season in store for us. Um, usually, it goes until oh, the end of September, maybe a little bit into October. Well, here in Maryland, it rains in the afternoon and sunny the next morning and rains again the next evening. <laughs> we got lots of variety going here. Um, we are happy, again, to have a guest with us. We don't always have guests, but uh, today we do. Today we have retired veteran missionary from New Tribes Mission, Jim Tanner. Jim is now in South Carolina, but he has served uh, I believe for 53 years in Papua New Guinea. Jim, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Welcome to Grace or Grit. Uh, Jim and I met, uh, Jim and I, that was uh, some kind of space <laughs> thing. Uh, Jim and I met, uh, my goodness, probably 14 or 15 years ago. He was one of the first missionaries that we took on here at Grace Baptist Church after I became pastor. And I still remember him sitting in my office and me talking with him and me thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing because I was brand new uh, and he was so gracious and kind and we were able to take him on as a missionary. It's been an honor to participate in his ministry from a distance, just via prayer and financial support. And uh, he's reported here a few times. And of course, we read his letters and our group of, uh, of ladies, our missionary society, as some churches would call it, I read his letters and uh, we've participated from a distance in Jim and Kathy's ministry. So the title of today's podcast is 53 Years in Papua New Guinea. Did I get that number right? Were you there for 53 years or did it take you a few years to get there? Um, yeah, it took a couple of years. We were there uh, just short of four months of making 52 years. The other was preparation. Right. Some of the most amazing missionary stories uh, that I've heard uh, have come from your lips. And uh, you don't know this, but normally I have a, a pretty extensive script that I write up and send over to Patrick. But uh, I didn't even put one together for this one. I figured after 50 years on the mission field, if we have to come up with something to talk about, something's wrong. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, why don't we just start at the beginning? Um, tell us about your faith in Christ. How did you come to know the Lord? I was from a poor family. In, uh, I was born in Akron, Ohio. My father was an alcoholic. And um, my mother, I think, was a believer and attended church occasionally. But I heard parts of the gospel, but I never understood it. 
And then in uh, when I was 14, my aunt and uncle in South Carolina invited me down for the summer. My brother and I, one of the first Sundays I went to a big Baptist church and I sat up in the balcony. I wasn't really interested. And the pastor was gone. This guest speaker was speaking and he talked about the cross. He said, if you were a Roman, you would never wear one around your neck and you wouldn't put one on your building either. And he went on to explain what Christ did on the cross. And he asked a series of questions. He said, uh, well, who do you think killed Jesus on the cross? And uh, I was up there and I said, well, everybody knows that. It's the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. And he said, don't say it was the Roman soldiers. And I almost looked around. I thought I had a mic or something up there in the balcony. Anyway, um, as I heard that, uh, he pointed out that that it was the sins of man that Christ died for. And so we were personally involved in his death. And I I really couldn't shake that. I went home. I was at the kitchen table. My aunt and uncle were in bed. And I just said, God, I don't, I, I've never seen you. I don't know if you're there, but what I heard tonight, I can't shake it. And the pastor said, if I was the only one alive, I would have killed you personally. And I certainly am a sinner and I, I need your help. And if your son died for me, then I, I, I thank you for that. And I ask you to make me your child and help me to walk with you. And that night, uh, no flash of light or anything, but a quiet assurance that uh, God kept his word and he saved me that night. So I was very thankful for that. That's awesome. God works in uh, powerful ways to bring people to himself. And I always love hearing the simple stories of God's grace and salvation. How he tran- transforms lives and bring pe- brings people into his own family. So, Jim, uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how God called you into the mission field? Was it... Um, did he call you specifically to Papua New Guinea, or did that take some time to uh, figure out? Yeah, it's kind of a mystery. Um, as I said, my father wasn't saved, and he was very prejudiced, especially against Afro-Americans. And I didn't have any in my school district or in the part, my part of town. So I always wondered why he he hated him so badly. And, and uh, to regress a little bit, when I was... Uh, when I got saved when I was 14, I went back to Akron. I didn't go to a a good church. I didn't have any Christian friends. So I didn't grow for that two years. And my aunt and uncle who invited me down before, when I got saved, they invited me back when I was 16. Uh, When I was 15, my mother died suddenly. And uh, she went out to be with friends on the way home. She sat down and had a cup of tea at a restaurant and just killed over and died and it was a, a shock to all of us and I remember uh, I was very unhappy during that time and I, I knew I was God's child but I also knew that I had wasted my two years so when my aunt and uncle invited me back for a couple of weeks I actually stayed two years so I always tell people if you ask a tanner to visit you better be ready for a long visit but uh, while I was down there I, I uh, Actually, on the way down on the bus, I said, God, you know, I've wasted these two years and help me to grow. I I just want to walk with you and be pleasing to you. So when I got to South Carolina, uh, the two weeks were up and I ended up staying two years. I finished my junior and senior year and had the privilege my senior year of going to Bob Jones Academy. And while I was there, a senior at the university gave me the book the old original book, The History of New Tribes Mission, and some tracts, and I took them home and read them, and uh, the Holy Spirit just really uh, convicted me that Christ's reason for coming was to die for sinners, but they needed to be told the message, and, and the church had failed in history to complete that, to take the gospel into all the world, and so I remember I knelt down beside my bed and I just said, God, I I, I feel so bad that uh, all these people haven't heard the gospel. And 
that the church hasn't fulfilled your commission to them. And, and you know, I'm not a good person, but if you can use me in some way, I give my life to you. And so that was the beginning for me. I was uh, 17 when I gave my life to the Lord uh, to serve him. And uh, when I was 18, uh, the summer of uh, 1965, I went into training, which took me three and a half years. And uh, we had these little uh, prayer times in, in all through training. And uh, it seemed like the group that we got into the most often, where they had uh, newsletters and prayer letters for missionaries on the field, was Papua New Guinea and occasionally Africa, but somehow I was drawn to the people of dark color. <laughs> it's strange because my dad hated them so badly, but in the end, I, I wanted to get to know them. In my training, I went to a, a black church in Milwaukee and just loved the people. They loved Christ. They knew the word. and uh, We had uh, child evangelism classes there. And uh, so seemed like over and over we got into these prayer groups with either Africans or uh, Papua New Guineans. So in the end, we believe God wanted us to go to Papua New Guinea. So we, we uh, set our minds on going that way. The problem was I, I didn't have a home church. As I mentioned, when I was in Akron, I, I didn't attend a church or not very often. And uh, so after we finished our training three and a half years, and we uh, we didn't have a supporting church, and God led us to a church one uh, Sunday morning. It was called uh, Falls Baptist Temple in those days. And uh, there were two congregations meeting together for the first time. So it was just a new event for us. We didn't know who was who. But one group owned the building and uh, had a congregation, but no pastor. And another group met in a school building, and they had a pastor. And this particular Sunday, they met together and uh, became Falls Baptist Temple, and they became our supporting church. Our first and only our first term, we got $100 a month, uh, our whole first four and a half years on the field. Wow. Man, hard days. Didn't even know how hard it was, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It, I look back over our, I look back over our uh, financial records, and it was impossible for us to live on that amount of money. Mm-hmm. But God not only kept us there, He kept us healthier because we had to eat local foods instead of canned foods from overseas. And Kathy was anemic and had to have iron shots, but. When she started eating the local food, her hemoglobin went as high as a man's and stayed there basically all our time over there. Huh. So, yeah, God, God knew what he was doing. Wow. So, Jim, um, I, I had an experience with New Tribes, or uh, what's what's the name changed to? I always forget uh, the, your mission now. Yeah. It's called Ethnos 360. Ethnos 360. That's right. I, I guess I'm always going to remember it as new tribes. I can't, I can't seem to remember the new name. Um, but I just recently had an, an experience with them um, out in the village we were in. We have a, uh, a solar system that's actually made by them. And I was talking to their tech team uh, and they were helping me fix some of the issues with it so that we could get it working. But uh, I have a whole book there from new tribes and it talks about all the different like off grid systems um, and how, how they all work. And I guess it's probably part of the training that's going on there now, but just tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like to live in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, did you have to have like technical training? Did you have solar? Like what, what did you do? What was it like? I think in uh, 1969, when we went, uh, nobody knew about solar except the sun. <laughs> I don't remember it all. <laughs> so we didn't have any training for tech. Uh, we had some. Yet. <laughs> no, we had some uh, training in medical, which helped us uh, on the field. But things were pretty rough in those days. Um, uh, we had an outdoor toilet. We uh, 
just had water that we cut off the roof into a large tank, and uh, it was just gravity-fed into the house, no hot water. Um, we took these buckets and put like a like a sprinkler can uh, sprinkler in the bottom, and you you turned it off, and you filled the bucket, and you pulled it up with pulleys by a rope, and then you got in and turned this. Uh, the shower head on, and if you were quick, you got all the soap off before the water ran out. Sometimes you didn't. Uh, so it was pretty primitive, and the people, too, were very primitive in those days. Um, we called them semi-primitive because they did have a few things from the Western world. But when I went, like uh, 95% of my women, the women in my tribe were topless. They just wore these little string um Skirts in the front uh, didn't even cover their thighs or buttocks, and they wore a little cloth in the back. And the men went shirtless a lot, and um, they had a little apron like in the front, and uh, just put a large leaf to cover their backside. And it depended how dry those leaves were, how well they covered them. But they were pretty primitive, and uh, so we didn't have a lot of techy stuff in those days. We didn't have a fridge. Uh, we did have a washing machine. It was a Briggs Stratton motor on a Maytag uh, ringer washer. But yeah, through the years, the tech stuff really helped. I remember getting our first uh, computer in 1985, I think it was. And uh, that was a great help to us in the work. 1985, that's about the first time I ever saw a computer in, in Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were quite large in those days. Right. Yeah. Ours was a little Texas instrument. Wouldn't hardly do anything. Yeah. Um, what, where did the population from Papua New Guinea come from? Because I'm guessing a lot of our li listeners know nothing about Papua New Guinea except the name Papua New Guinea. So where did the population actually originate? Because it's, it's off the coast of Australia. Am I right? That's correct. Um, it's uh, north of Australia. It's about the size of California. When we went, there was like a million people, but now it's up to eight and a half million. They've multiplied pretty quickly. Um, we don't know where they originated. There are some on the south coast, we call them Papuans. Uh, they look more like, um, like Polynesians. And I'm sure traders came through in the old days and maybe they brought some of them that way. But the ones uh, in New Guinea, they're definitely different. They're sh basically shorter. They have short, kinky hair. They don't have the long hair like the pop ones. And um, they're basically just subsistence farmers using sticks. Uh, they had no tools, except uh, they would get uh, some stones out of the river and, and then just file them. Uh, slate stones and file them and use them for axes and adzes. And so they were pretty primitive. And I, I don't know where they came from. I'm sure they came from the Tower of Babel. Right. And you had a fairly uh, a unique ministry, at least from my perspective. Now, it might not be unique from a missionary's perspective, but um, <laughs> you weren't just giving the gospel and trying to build a church. You were involved in translation work and curriculum uh, writing. Is that right? Did you do that the whole time or did you start that, you know, decades into your ministry there? What, what exactly was that all about? Well, in the tribe, uh, it was an unwritten language. So there was no alphabet and we had learned a international phonetic alphabet of sounds. So if I, if I wrote the sound properly, I could reproduce it. So that really helped me. And we also study the culture of the people as well as the language and build relationships with them. And uh, as I mentioned, we didn't get much money in those days and we built a pretty simple house um, that was required by the Australian government at the time. And uh, they gave us a land lease. But in those days, uh, because speaking English in the home, the men were advised to go out into a village away from their wife and kids so they wouldn't have English around. So I did that uh, five days and five nights a week. I was apart from my family. And uh, I had something very 
fortunate it happened that it was kind of rare, but I was adopted by a couple in the in the village. Uh, they said, we've never had any children of our own. Uh, we want to adopt you and you can be our son. And that was a huge uh, blessing from God because I knew where I fit, fit in through the years. I had my parents and my aunts and uncles and my brothers and sisters. And, and the thing that helped with the, the people is then they, I had a relationship with them and uh, it was just so helpful through the years. And I really got to, they didn't hide information from me. It was a matter of uh, hearing it and understanding it and um, trying to understand their worldview and what made them tick, especially their religious beliefs. So many missionaries just think their hearts are empty because they're heathen and they can just pour the word of God in and, and they'll just understand. But they're very religious people, even though they're some of the most primitive they have, uh, they're steeped in what we call animism. Uh, I'm sure that's true where Patrick is as well. Most of the world, we call them animistic people. They believe that the spirits control the world. Their worldview is to keep the spirits happy, and uh, that will make the world run properly. So when they first heard about God through other people, they just considered him another spirit to keep happy. And so by living with the people, and seeing their fear of death, uh, their beliefs in the afterlife. They didn't have many uh, much to say about the afterlife, except that they did believe it was a, an eternal place. Uh, but they didn't know if people married or not. And But the thing was, uh, they were from a very simple world where they had pigs and chickens in their gardening. They didn't have any metal objects. They didn't have any glass or fossil fuels or anything uh, to use in those days. And so when they first uh, saw a white man, they thought he must be from the world of the dead. And so in their world, they didn't have white people. They didn't have all these material things. And so the only other place in the world that they knew of was the world of the dead. And so when I first arrived, uh, I was very white. I'm a light skin anyway, but then I worked in a factory in November and I went over there in December and I, I you know, I hadn't seen the sun for a while. And uh, they just all marveled that I was uh, reincarnated and came back to them. And they all claimed that we were one of them, but uh, how you could be a, a dead Papua New Guinea and come back as a, a white person and not know any of their language or cultures, it doesn't make sense, but that's the way animism is. And so uh, learning that really helped me uh, to know how to approach them with the gospel. And the biggest thing, you're talking about difficult things today, the biggest thing was that there was no scripture in their language, not even a track. And so I did a few tracks and did a few Bible verses for the gospel, like the Romans Road and what we do over here. But I realized because of their animistic background, uh, they wouldn't understand the gospel if I just gave them the Romans Road because they didn't know who God was. They didn't know what sin was. They didn't know who Satan was. I mean, they it wouldn't fit together for them. And unfortunately, many Christian missionaries around the world I tried to present the gospel in a way that wasn't understood. It was absorbed or what we call, uh, there was a lot of syncretism where they mixed Christianity with their own beliefs. Yeah, Jim, we, we see a lot of, the, a lot of the same things here. Um, I've, although ours is, um, uh, Muslim background believers, they do mix in a lot of animism um, with their beliefs. Um, it's more of a folk Islam. And uh, I just wonder if you might be able to take a couple minutes and tell us, you know, what was it like, um, you know, raising a family there in Papua New Guinea, um, living, you know, changing your whole lifestyle, Um I assume your kids were your kids born there. Um, I don't know a whole lot um, about your family. But Only our last about that. And... Yeah, we took two children over. Um, one was uh, 
two and a half, and the other one was 18 months, I think. And unknown to us, uh, oh, okay. we were carrying the other one internally. <laughs> uh, after we got to Papua New Guinea, Kathy realized that she was pregnant. So our last daughter was born in uh, Papua New Guinea. And uh, all my kids wow. love Papua New Guinea and, and, and always want to go back. They had planned when we retired to come over and attend some of the farewell ceremonies we had. They'd all saved their money and got their passports current, but because of COVID, they weren't allowed to come. So we might go back together sometime this year or next year sometime. Um, yeah, my kids never felt uh, like they missed out by growing up in Papua New Guinea, and they still yearn for it today. And when we come home on furloughs, they always want certain foods uh, like they have these crackers over there called highway beef crackers. And they always want us to bring those over and some other foods from Papua New Guinea. Um, yeah, they all long for it and miss it. So um, fortunately, uh, Kathy was a great mother and she uh, took care of the kids the five days and five nights a week I was gone because I did that for uh, almost uh, three years before I was. Uh, was fluent in the language and culture. Uh, so I don't know. I think uh, if I had it to do over, I wouldn't do it that way. But that was the way people did it in those days. And so we did it. But by living in the village with the people, I didn't have any English with me except my Bible. And uh, I got culture shock <coughs> from many things. For one thing, um, I washed in our mountain stream that was over 6,000 feet above sea level, very cold. Um, I drank the water that came out of a sea pole that all the village drank out of. Uh, there were no toilets. Uh, people just went out in the coffee. So when people talk about organic coffee, they might <laughs> they might be used for toilets in the countries they come from. Um, and uh, it was it was very primitive. My village mother cooked for me most of the time. Other villagers shared food. I didn't have to pay for food. They always gave it freely. And um, yeah, but anyway, as you said, my kids went to school there. They started in uh, first and second grade. They went to a boarding school. That was rough on mom and dad, but the kids enjoyed it. <laughs> they liked being with other kids and the sports activities and even classes. So yeah, it was uh, it wasn't a terrible experience for them. Sometimes we had to give shots to them and and uh, treat them because uh, we were out in away from the town. Uh, but we had had a bit of training for that. So and we had uh, medicine on hand to do that. But overall, they they speak very highly of their time there. Well, that's good and our son, our son actually went back to Papua New Guinea and worked there for almost 20 years. And then he stayed with the New Tribes for another five years, building, helping them build here in America. So um, some kids have bad experiences, but mine, they were pretty positive. Well, that's good. So you mentioned uh, culture shock. Uh, what would you say was the most shocking thing to you that was just really hard to get adjusted to coming from America? Like what was the most difficult thing that you'd say, man, I wish, I wish I'd, you know, prepared for that a little better, or, you know, uh, took a long time to get over. Yeah. I don't know if I could have prepared for the, a lot of them. <laughs> one, one, one was, um, tribal fighting. Our people were from different villages and different bloodlines, different clans, and uh, they fought about three major things. One was women, if somebody messed with their women, if somebody tried to steal their land, or if they killed one of their pigs. So they they were hot-headed people, and they went to battle very quickly. And They would start with uh, just yelling and throwing stones, and then they would go to clubs, and then they'd go get their bows and arrows. And, they would do that uh, probably every two years or so, something would come up and they'd get these battles and then they'd call in their allies and the the, war, the fighting got bigger and bigger. 
and it wasn't much in a scale, international scale, but it surely disrupted life. The schools were stopped. People couldn't go to the clinics. Uh, they couldn't travel on the road. They couldn't go to town to get food or medical help. So that was a, a shock. We never really felt in danger because they they knew we were missionaries, so they didn't threaten us or anything. And the other thing was just the, the general belief that I was from uh, the world of the dead. And I remember early in the village, one of the old men said, well, you're from under the ground, aren't you, in the water? I said, no, I'm not. Liar, you liar. <laughs> All white people are from under the water. And I said, no, I'm not from where you've seen God. No, I haven't seen God. Liar, liar. <laughs> and that precepts was really hard to battle against, you know. And uh, when people would see me, especially uh, when I did treks into the jungles and tried to find new places for our missionaries to start work, uh, the people just marvel uh, that a white man would sit down and eat with them. And they would always think that I was from under the water. And uh, one man said, look at my arm. Look at it. It's dirty and it's rough and it's black. Now look at yours. And he said, look, it's white and smooth and clean. That's what things do when they're from under the water. <laughs> and uh, no matter what I said, they wouldn't believe it. And so I realized only God's word could change that or a, a broader worldview, which wasn't going to happen very quickly in my village. And one of the other things is just being away from uh, my own country and my own language. And they used to roll their own cigarettes uh, from newspapers from Australia. They'd get paper in town and bring it home and roll their own um, and I got so bad that I would read labels off of all the cans with what was in them, where they came from, all the ingredients. And would somebody pull the roll of newspaper out to make one of their cigarettes, I'd say, can I hold your paper for a minute? And I would read all the English off of what I could, whether it was car ads or uh, what it was. And I, I realized I, I was in culture shock. I was missing my own mother tongue. But it really helped me learn the language faster and um, to have a great relationship with people. So I'm sure you've had this question 10,000 times, but uh, humor me, if you will. Uh, would you be willing to quote some passage of scripture to us in, in the native tongue over there, the, maybe John 3.16 or something? Okay. Um, John 3.16 was Yagman no non dan Absolutely none of it. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, yeah, and then some of the, you know, like the attempt at church planning, um, these people had another group that had come and really poisoned their minds earlier, and they were very loyal to them, and they thought that um, they were saved because of their works, their baptism and their communion and stuff. And uh, It took a long time, and even last night I was talking to a former missionary, and he said that they believed when God breathed into Adam, he breathed his Holy Spirit into him. And so after teaching these people, they'd say, well, you don't need to worry about it. We're all going to heaven because we have the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit's going to return to God, right? So we'll, we're going there. We're going to be with God. But they didn't understand they had to have a personal relationship and that the life he gave them was only uh, the Spirit was life, human life, Um they weren't automatically God's people just because of creation. Yeah. So I got a different question, Jim, um, much more serious. Uh, not that the last one was lighthearted, but it was more just uh, for my curiosity. Uh, but I find in my Christian life that I desperately need the constant interaction with godly people, spiritually, pe spiritual people, humble people, people who are in love with Christ. 
uh, people who are enamored with the gospel. I, I need that constantly in order um, to keep myself on target. I depend on that fellowship. Um, it sounds like you were in many ways alone a lot. How did that impact your personal walk with Christ? Uh, it was rough. It uh, put me in a place of dependence on him more than I'd ever known before, uh, especially when I saw wife beating and sorcery and witchcraft killings going on around me in the general worldview that was so godless. And I was there alone. There was nobody to talk to about it. There was nobody to pray with about it. And uh, it was rough. But when I went home uh, to the family, uh, we would all have a service together, our co-workers and their kids and our kids. And later, of course, as the church developed, we had brothers and sisters in the village. But it was a dark time. I told people, you know, over here, you hand out tracks and talk to people. And you go over there and you're like an infant. You can't even speak a word. And you start out like a child all over again where you... You learn one word at a time and you say it wrong and they correct it. <laughs> you know, it's a slow process of becoming fluent in their language and understanding their culture. So eventually when the church was there, we had brothers and sisters and we can meet together and pray and just talk and fellowship. And uh, sometimes when I come home on furloughs, uh, I'll be in a meeting and they'll be singing a worship song or something. And I just, I just, well up with tears and just so thankful to hear the singing in my mother tongue and the words that they're singing just uh, bring me to tears and I, I can't keep singing. I just have to stop and just uh, praise God for a little while. And I think that's true worship too. And if I hadn't been in the hard place, I wouldn't appreciate the the worship over here. Yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely relate to that, uh, Jim. Um, it was, we spent seven months in a village and it was uh, very difficult um, out in that village, uh, very, very dark place. And um, I, I just can't imagine doing that for year after year after year. Um, I was, I was definitely ready uh, to bring our family to the city here where there, are, you know, at least a few churches and, and to be able to have some fellowship. Uh, so uh, I've just started, you know, I, I haven't gotten to experience this yet, but I've heard it from a lot of missionaries and I'm starting to see, um, in my life, how this might be difficult, um, when we come back, uh, when we retire and, uh, I'm just wondering, uh, what was it, what was the decision like, um, to make the decision to retire and, and how is the transition been coming back to America. I mean, cause obviously you adjusted to a, a new culture, a new country, and then, you know, to come back and live in America, I'm sure America started to seem like a very foreign place to you. Yeah, it's been a struggle. Uh, we got home mid August of last year. And the reason we retired was because there's a mandatory retirement policy with uh, new transmission that it's 75 uh, most of the people retire then. If you're healthy and you're doing an important job, they will let you come back a year at a time if leadership on the field and leadership in your home country agree to it. Um, but we came back, and Kathy was having some major problems. She's coughed, had this cough for about 30 years, and she's had a, a lot of tests since she's been home. They still can't figure out what's wrong with her. And then she had stomach problems, and they're doing better on that part. She had a lot of tests. and But um, it, it's a funny example, but I, I was in a gas station, and somebody had one of these uh, cold coffees, you know. And uh, I saw it there, and I want, I, it was hot. I was, I was in Florida, and I, I wanted to get one, but I had no idea where the ice came from. I'm looking all around, where am I going to get the ice and how do I get this coffee all mixed up? And, and I finally had to ask somebody, it was very embarrassing. Um, but that's what happens when technology goes on while you're overseas. Um, and sometimes pumping gas and paying for it and stuff like that. Over there, they still pump our gas for us. And, uh, a lot of little things, but the more complicated things, we're trying to buy a house now and supposed to close on it next week and 
the multitude or the myriad of things you do to buy a house, at least here in South Carolina, all the documents and the financial records and just everything. It's just been overwhelming. And I just think I'd rather go back to New Guinea than I don't, you know, the 51 years we spent there, um, I don't want to erase that. And I know it will influence me the rest of my life. Some of it for good, most of it for good. Um, so yeah, I don't have many years to relearn American culture and just the way of doing things, but basically we fit in all right. Nobody glares at us or anything, but uh, I really miss the people. They're very friendly over there and they all hug you and um, squeeze you and occasionally kiss you and I come over here and people are uh, not so enthusiastic. <laughs> and I know that. I know it's a difference in culture, but it still makes you miss it a little bit. Or sometimes you even judge the situation that they're not happy to see me because they didn't shake my hand or they didn't give me a hug or whatever. But uh, there was another question I didn't fully answer. Can I go back to that about when we developed the other curriculum work? Sure. Okay, uh, after we were in our tribe, uh, we we went into it in 1971, and in 1985, uh, another group had done a translation and printed that year, and when we read, we understood every single word, but together they didn't make sense. And we brought people from their dialect and people from our dialect and we read it and they just, they couldn't understand it either. And uh, we had a translation consultant there doing the check for us. And at the end of it, she said that her conclusion was you're going to have to do another translation. Mm-hmm. And I never figured myself as a, a, the major translator in the tribe. But one fortunate thing is I'd been there for 15 years by then. And I spoke the language uh, well, and uh, that was a big help. But the 10 years following, um, I had actually done the book of Genesis first because I wanted people to start at the beginning and uh, in some of their Old Testament passages to explain Christ coming and the promise of the Messiah coming. But I just, uh, I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not the translator here. I can't do a whole New Testament. Uh, and I'm a very sociable person. I I was out with the people in their gardens and different things they attended. And uh, I, I like people. I like to talk with people. I like to do things with people. And being in my office for the next 10 years <laughs> was really like prison to me. And I thought of the Apostle Paul. And I thought, well, if he hadn't been in prison near the end when he did the uh, epistles, uh, they wouldn't have got done because he was a very sociable man too. He traveled and went and preached the gospel everywhere. And so uh, it was a really another a very hard thing. And, and like everything before, you just, you're cast on the Lord saying, God, I can't do this, but you can. I, I yield myself to you. And our whole life, our whole ministry has been that way. We have things come up and we say, oh God, I, I, I'm not trained for this. I can't do this. But the consultant said to me, who else is going to do it? You're the only one that knows this language and uh, knows the gospel and knows the word of God. So who else is going to do it? And I submitted to that and uh, took me 10 years, but it got done. And uh, by that time, the church had developed and uh, they were so glad to have the word in their own language. And then we finished that in 94, came home on furlough, had it printed, went back and dedicated it in 96. And um, when you say that, you mean the, the whole New Testament? Yes, sir. Wow. And uh, then uh, we had another family that were fluent in the language working with us. And there was a need for leadership, uh, help in leadership, New Tribes leadership in town. And so I went down, we prayed about it, we talked to to our coworkers about it, and we decided we'd go down and help. I'm thinking help. I'll help him write some of his emails and letters, and I'll, I'll help him with these meetings or whatever. 
But we got down there, and about a week later, he left. And so, again, I was in a situation where I was really uh, out of my league. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about being a leader. I didn't even know what emails were when I first went down uh, the accounts. I was tasked with selling a property in New Guinea, and I had no idea what that entailed. And then we were developing a new station, 21 houses, and some uh, shops, uh, like tech technical training uh, with solar and stuff and another print shop. And uh, I had not not a clue about uh, building houses and carpentry and ordering this stuff for building. And and again, we were just totally cast on the Lord. And and the worst thing is that there was some division amongst the team there. And I didn't even know what the problem was walking through that with the individuals and trying to get things right again. And <clears throat> and there again, we're just cast on the Lord in every area. And yet when I, w- I was leader there for 14 years, <clears throat> and then I was field chairman for three years. And by the time I turned over the keys to the, my replacement, our development, the 21 houses were totally finished, and we, we didn't know a dime. God had provided the expertise and the supplies and the money uh, to do to finish that, and you just look back and said, "It's God, you know, it wasn't us." And so, um, one thing while I was in leadership there, I noticed that a lot of pastors would come in, Papua New Guinea pastors, and uh, I had people come into the office to talk to me, uh, different church leaders and elders and deacons, and it, it, it became apparent to me that most of them didn't know the word of God, not in a practical way. And it wasn't really changing their lives very much. And so we couldn't go and learn all the languages from these different people. There's 860 languages and the mission had worked with these people, but they left or they left prematurely or because of illness or because of their children needing higher education different reasons. And so I was so burdened for these people. How are we going to teach them? Uh, we can't go back and learn all these languages again and start. So there's a trade language in New Guinea called Melanesian Pidgin English. And in the early days, only a few men spoke it. Uh, women hardly ever spoke it. But now they're very fluent. And through intermarriage, somebody from one language marrying a woman from another language, they would speak Melanesian Pidgin English in their homes. And so it's become a, a language, a vernacular, and, and the largest one in Papua New Guinea. So we, um, another man started translating through our lessons, our chronological lessons, creation to Christ. And uh, I picked up from him. And uh, through the years, we produced uh, 10 volumes of Pigeon English lessons, going from Genesis all the way through the epistles. And... Uh, that was a great help when we saw people getting into that. We did teachers training how to use them properly. And uh, it just started spreading. And uh, it's still like a wave still going. I still get um, news from back there how, how the church is doing. And uh, it's just unbelievable. Like one of our older works uh, they just they just didn't get it, you know. But when they got into this teaching and these lessons, the Word of God, they they really uh, it really broadened their worldview and who God is and what God's plan for the church is. And they actually started sending missionaries out to other languages. And uh, an example, we had a guy named Robert. He went down to another area. He stayed there three years with the people. He taught them through all those lessons and and developed teachers and uh, church leaders. And then he st- start, they got the invitations for two more villages. And so his uh, disciples went out and started reproducing what he had done for them. And now they've gotten invitations from clear down, like three days walk away down near the southern coast uh, to teach there. And they had three invitations there, and we're teaching uh, 500 people uh, through those same lessons. And they will stay with them until they take them all, all the way through the epistles. And 
see strong churches, and that's multiplying all over the country. So we're so thankful we um, took time to do that. And other denominations uh, ask us to help their churches, and so we've done that too, and that spread. And then English is the national language, so we thought, well, their English isn't so good. And the English books that are written uh, with the lessons, they don't address animism or uh, spiritism or some of the things they're in. So we did a plain English for Papua New Guinea. And uh, even those have been, uh, we've had people in India and uh, uh, South Africa, different places ask for our simple English ones. They can read them and then translate them into their own languages. So we had no idea uh, how we would uh, address that problem, but God has really more than answered our prayers. <clears throat> and we didn't even know how to put a book together in the early days. I had no money. I was given 6000 to start the printing ministry. And after a few months, I gave it back uh, to the ones who gave it to us. And uh, from there till now, we've had over a quarter million dollars in books, our inventory, and um, we have 26 books now. And then the printers, it's another miracle. Am I droning on here? Do you want me to go? Go right ahead. Okay. Um, we approached a printer that we knew was a Christian printer in Northern Ireland. Some of our missionaries had worked there before. And he wrote back and said, well, we'd love to help you, but we don't print books. We just do little pamphlets and we fold them in half and staple them. So he pointed me to a printer in uh, Hong Kong. So our first books uh, we had printed in Hong Kong. And then about uh, several months later, this printer in Ireland said, hey, Jim, I just want to let you know that one of my staff members said this project that Jim wants to do for the churches, it's so important. Why can't we print the books and collate them and send them to another printer to be bound? So they decided to do that. And they would do 5,000 copies at a time. Um, and, you know, we would scrape our money together from book sales and send it to them. And then we got about halfway through the projects. And uh, I, this guy's name was Samuel. I'd say, Samuel, how much would it be to print this book? Can you print it? And how much will it be? And he'd say, uh, yeah, we could print it. And I said, well, how much will it be? And he said, well, you don't understand. When I say we can print it, that means we have the money in our budget to print it. And so probably about half our books, they printed for free. They sent them out to be bound. They packed them and shipped them all the way to New Guinea for free. And uh, so we lowered the price of our books in half because half of them were free now. So we we weren't trying to make money. We we're just trying to Get, get get God's word out. And again, it was just a miracle that God used this print shop and uh, something they'd never done before. And we were cast on the Lord again, and God more than showed us uh, his grace and his power to work in the situation. So yeah, our life has been a, a life of finding difficult things, uh, not knowing how to do it being cast on the Lord and God helping us and, and then seeing fruit through that. So um, people often say, would you go back there if you had all, all to do again? And I said, I sure would. I wouldn't want to miss uh, seeing God work and uh, strengthen his church there in the country. Yeah. You have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. Yeah. You ought to write a book, God's Grace in Papua New Guinea. The life of times of Jim and Kathy Tanner. <laughs> a lot of awesome. people have said that. That's amazing stuff. That. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. stuff. I have another question. Uh, maybe this will be my last one. Um, have you got a church that you're that you're in now that that you feel like this is this is where God wants us? This is this is a group of people who who understand where we've come from and. Uh, can comfort us and and we can serve in this in this place um, God's brought us through you know a lot of things and this is this is the next phase have you got a church that that's feeding your spirit in that way yes we do uh, we're thankful to God for that too we have two supporting churches here in the Greenville South Carolina area 
and one we attend more than the other one. Um, and they support us. Both of them still support us partially for our transition projects. Um, but yes, we're we're fed. We go to a small home group every Wednesday as well to discuss the sermon on Sunday. And uh, yeah, God's put a team around us, and I'm sure He's going to keep adding to that. And we had a lady in our church at um, Bethel Baptist Church in Hartsville, Alabama. She was a retired missionary from Japan. Uh, Miss Mayo was her name, and uh, she I guarantee you she has no idea how much of a blessing and inspiration she was to us. We were brand new in ministry, you know, just just as young as Moses out of the Nile, just about, and knowing virtually nothing. And uh, she was so gracious and kind and encouraging to us. And uh, I have no doubt that God has already used you guys in many ways to. Uh, to prepare the hearts of the next generation of missionaries. And uh, I'm sure we'll still be doing that through you. I'm sure that's one of the reasons he brings faithful missionaries back from the foreign field to this land uh, to prepare another generation. Yeah. When, uh, when we were recently sick with COVID and I just couldn't get my strength back and, and the Holy spirit whispered to me, you know, uh, God's attitude toward me is not going to change if I never translate another lesson yeah. or if I never do anything else, his love for me is steadfast. And uh, I rest in that. And I know he'll, he'll continue using us as long as we yield ourselves to him. Yeah. Amen to that. Patrick, you got anything to add? No, I just want to say uh, I, I enjoyed the last time that we were together, Jim, you being able to uh, stay at our house when you were visiting uh, Grace Baptist church and uh, hopefully uh Hopefully we'll get to meet again sometime when I'm back in uh, back in the states on furlough. Yeah, are you studying Wolof? Uh, I was, yeah. While I was in the village, uh, I was working on Wolof. Um, we had some some team issues. One of our teammates got sick and had to be evacuated out. Um, I ended up having to take over as uh the director here on the field a lot sooner than had been anticipated uh and so now i'm in the city where also the folks that were running our guest house uh had to leave quickly they had family uh health problems and had to get back to the states and so now we're um i'm having to do a couple of jobs as well as um uh, some partnerships we're also closing down a health clinic uh, as well out in the village. And so I'm having to work with the government and another church on that to see if we can get a partnership built there. So it's uh, my language, unfortunately, is not where I'd like it to be yet. Uh, but here in the city, there's a lot of English, um, which is good and bad. My wolf is getting worse instead of better at the moment. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have a grandson in Senegal. He's studying wolf as well. Yeah, it sounds like you're heading down the same path I was getting all these jobs that you have no expertise in, but uh, God will help you. He sure will. Yep. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Um, We know that promise and you guys, uh, Jim, you've walked through that for years and uh, Patrick, you're walking through that uh, right now. Uh, You know, Jesus said those who wear... uh, uh, soft clothing or in king's king's palaces when he was talking about john the baptist what'd you go out to see when you went to see john the baptist and yeah. uh, I, I feel like i'm i'm the prince here uh d- dwelling uh in in comfort in herlock while god's used you guys uh in the middle of nowhere um but his plan is perfect and uh as you said jim we don't get our value from you know, our usefulness, we find our value in Christ and then our useful usefulness extends from that. Um, but I just, I rejoice. You, you guys are my hero and I appreciate so much your uh, commitment to Christ and your devotion to him and your service to him and your love for him and uh, how, how you have been and are being used, both you guys, um, for the building of the kingdom and the glory of, of our Savior. Well, we're glad you got our back too. <laughs> I stayed with the stuff. Uh, yeah, not, not very risky, but <laughs> that was David's men, right? They, some of them 
couldn't go fight. They stayed by the stuff. All right. Yeah. <laughs> we all got our places. Yes. That's right. All right. Well, I guess that about does it. Thank you, Jim and Patrick, for spending some time with me today. I pray for God's blessings on both of you, your families and your ministries continually. Pray for God's blessing upon the church in Papua New Guinea. To our listeners, no matter what platform you're listening to this podcast on, be sure to let others know about it and uh, listen to other episodes as well. If you'll take the time to click like or to share or to subscribe or to comment or review, all those options are out there on the various platforms and on social media. That would help our podcast to grow uh, in an organic way. I want uh, God to bless all of you who are listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.